Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Hi, and welcome to our show. I am Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and with me is our host, Dr. Russ McCullough, the Wayne D. Angel Distinguished Chair of Economics and founder of the Gartney Institute. All right, well, we have a heck of a show here because we got a little two-for-one special uh, with two economists on. I am uh, pleased to have uh, Dr. Charity Joy on and Dr. Dirk. Matir. Um, so we got two PhD economists who happen to be married to each other. And so I'm looking forward to this discussion. Um, they both are senior lecturers at the Department of Economics at University of Arizona. Charity Joy wrote a fun book called Dystopia and Economics, a guide to serving everything from the apocalypse to zombies, which uh, she must comment on when we get in there. So um, I've, I've told everyone for years that economists study all kinds of things in all kinds of places, anything dealing with people. And apparently this is how people relate to zombies or something. So um, she got her PhD from uh, George Mason uh, University and uh, her husband and a colleague at University of Arizona is Dr. Dirk Matier. And uh, Dirk has a principles book, and he's been a leader in especially large lecture halls. So I, when I first met Dirk at a conference, uh, he was talking about how to handle uh, groups of 500 in a principles of economics class. And I had some experience doing that myself. And so he's come up with some real creative techniques and things that he's done over the years to make economics lessons valuable even to people who seem to be a fly on the wall way up in the nosebleed section of a class of 500. Um, so pleased to have both of these two on today and uh, looking forward to the discussion. So welcome um, if you two to the show and uh, look forward to uh, talking about, you said something about God, uh, visible and invisible or something along those lines. Uh, what, were your, what were you thinking there? Well, I think, uh, first off, it's great to be here, Russ and Justin, and, and thanks for having us both on. We really appreciate it. To your point about God, I think one of the, the things that we just thought would be interesting to talk about would be, where do you find God? It, do you find God in, in the visible world? Or is God invisible? Is God the invisible force uh, that created the universe? Um, and how can we sort of relate these ideas to economic reasoning? And specifically, maybe just as a jumping off question here, um, I think in the classroom, when I'm teaching, I see my role as an instructor is to try to make all of the economic decisions that we face visible to students. And that means illuminating things that are invisible, like opportunity cost and implicit costs. And I think that that extra layer of like inspection is what drives deep economic knowledge. And I think the same sort of inquiry into God and the way God works in the universe around us um, is an interesting touchstone. So I'm throwing that out there uh, as a point of discussion. Yeah, I think that's great. The first thing that jumped to my mind was uh, Bastiat with the unseen and um, his famous broken window fallacy uh, that a class I was teaching actually earlier uh, today brought up. 
um, that we think that, oh, a broken window, at least the, the person who's fixing the window is going to help uh, the economy and they're going to get paid. But we're, we're not thinking about the, if the window hadn't been broken, then the store owner could have went out and bought something else. And so we would have been ultimately better off without that broken window. But it looks like um, it could be that. And I think um, that's some of the evidence that we see that us as economists are trained to look for those seen items. And I think uh, you're onto something there that it's uh, maybe similar in, in what we see and what we don't see here in the real world uh, as it relates to God. Yeah. Well, and often, Russ, we also focus on what we can see, and we give that a certain amount of importance, uh, more so than what we cannot see. And that's not necessarily uh, leading to optimal decisions, to put it in econ speak. Uh, so that's that's something we've seen recently, of course, looking at uh, COVID-19 and, hey, this is the data that we can see. This is what's available to us right now. We're putting a lot of weight on what is visible, these costs of people being in hospitals, uh, maybe people dying, uh, versus the invisible cost that people are starting to pay more attention to now than they did previously. Uh, but, but how much they're paying attention to that is still up for debate to how much they should, how much uh, importance is placed on that. So that is, that is always this balance between the visible and invisible and what we're, we are focusing on. Yeah, the civil disobedience in the Lake of the Ozarks and maybe Florida or whatever of people just going out and saying, screw it, I'm, I'm going to be out there doing my thing. Um, I think there's a, an interesting tension with the human bias of not really being able to fully comprehend all of the consequences uh, of, of that action. And, and then our uh, hyperbolic discounting, I think we call it, if I remember right, on not putting enough weight into that disaster in the future so that uh, we do things today that maybe if we were really using a rational calculation like an economist assumes, um, maybe we wouldn't be doing those things. So there, there's a lot of interesting issues going on with COVID for sure. I see, I see actually in the economic field, there tends to be more of a focus on what we can measure as well. That mm -hmm. is something that we in our pride or maybe our human pride, we say, hey, this is something that we can do. So we're going to focus on these things that we see um, that we can measure. We certainly see that um, in development. That's one of the fields that I began with. And a lot of the focus of the research ends up being on those things that you can actually measure. Mm -hmm. And the things that you can't that are more difficult, they don't get the same uh, weight in the journals and in your career path, you know, in, in the research. Uh, but that doesn't mean they aren't incredibly important, perhaps more important than those things that we can measure, which makes fields like development very, very difficult. The things that you can't see are, are what drive uh, development or what uh, drives the lack of development, perhaps, in some countries. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. What yeah. And I, I think that's why entrepreneurship was ignored for so long. It still is ignored to some degree by economists, simply because you can't measure it. It's really not measurable in many ways. We can use the, the number of startup firms versus the number of uh, firms that went under whatever. We try to come up with some proxies, but it, it's really not capturing the importance and the essence of entrepreneurship. And I think that's where the, the Austrians... Uh, had a little bit different insight with treating uh, economic behavior a little differently and, and embracing 
the idea of innovation and change and how important the entrepreneur is to that, to that mix. Um, and uh, too much of it has been on some of the mechanics. I, I'd like to think that there's been a resurgence, but I don't know if I'm just birds of a feather flock together. So I talk to people like you and, and other you know, free market-ish uh, type people. And so I, I can't really get a good feel if the economics field is changing in that direction to uh, embracing it, or if it's just me that I'm changing and I'm just part of the small minority. <laughs> I don't think our field has been very receptive to the change. And so one of the ways in which I can think about this is first off in terms of general civil discourse, um, it seems like our country has moved to two different polar opposites. So we don't have anyone occupying the middle in a way that suggests that their language can transcend the very narrow debates that we're having um, or different narrow perspectives we're having about economic and political issues. And I'll give you one example. It's an example I, I use in class. Um, I usually talk about a quote from, from Robert F. Kennedy when he's talking about gross national product, and this is in the 1960s. So it's gross national product. He says that our nation's gross national product of $800 billion, which is tiny uh, in today's standard, uh, doesn't measure everything that makes this country great. And he goes off and he just, he talks about everything that's wrong with the way we measure gross national product, which today we call GDP. Um, he says, look, it, it's, it's measuring rifles, it's measuring, um, it's, it's measuring um, the pollution, it's measuring all these things that we don't want, and yet it's not capturing all the things that we do want and hope for. It's not, um, it doesn't discuss the caring among individuals, it doesn't capture the, the value that we get and the joy we get from living our lives, it doesn't measure leisure hours. It, so, so GDP or GNP, however you want to think about that, is this flawed measure, but every debate and every argument that starts with any economist comes back to, well, what's happening to GDP? As if it's like the beginning and the end of the debate and the rest of the stuff is marginalized. So I do think we're still stuck in that, in, in this world of where numbers matter. Yeah. And, and, and to some extent it's, it's good. I, I think those give the right things like let's, get our arms around the things that we can measure, but then let's be open to these other things. And that's where I think that openness is not really there with economists. That's like, they're like, I kind of remember even some of my PhD professors like, uh, okay, well, we all know that we can't add up happiness together, but let's assume that we can. And then we go on to this long chapter of somehow, you know, creating a social utility function that it's the way uh, our brains Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's interesting. We see it even in economic education. So that's uh, both of our primary fields is economic education. And we go to conferences and it's just economists are stuck in geek mode. You know, we hear a paper, it's a really good idea, something you could use in the classroom. And the first question from somebody is, have you run a regression on this? You know, mm -hmm. have you done some sort of sample between classes and and do we know this really really works and there's you know there's journals out there in that field that 
publish those kind of studies. And those are really hard to do. If you talk to people in experimental economics, they say, we always throw out the, the experiments that are run by the experimenter because there's effects, you know, there's, there's those, those effects there. Same thing with in economic education, there's instructor effects as well, right? Um, but nevertheless, we see these studies published. So our journal actually focuses, Journal of Economics Teaching, focuses on these great ideas without requiring you know, instructors to run these different studies and say, hey, yeah, we found some significant something. It's, it's just yeah, a, that this was effective or something. Right, it's right. like, no, this is just fun and people and get it and it, we know that it makes sense. <laughs> exactly. That's the way the economist brain works, though, right? We, we are just drawn like magnets to that kind of thing. We need, we need that study. And instead we can throw out all these ideas. And that's, that's kind of, that was where um, Hayek had his creative powers essay come in saying, let's just throw out all these ideas, that entrepreneur that you're talking about, and let's see which ones work and which ones don't. People will figure it out. You know, so it's like, we're throwing out all these ideas that, Hey, these are great. We think they'll work well in your classroom. Try them out. If they do continue to use them, if they don't, throw them out, you know, and that it's a kind of a different approach, but it's not the approach that economists tend to naturally be drawn to. Yeah, yeah the, the journal that Charity Joyce talking about, Journal of Economics Teaching, is effectively um, a journal about entrepreneurship in teaching economics, because we want to be on the cutting edge of innovation and, and throw the idea out there and, and see if other people gravitate towards it, pick it up, use it, run with it, just the way entrepreneurs um, think about those problems. Yeah, and I think the, those types of experiments are the things that really students can hang their hat on as they're learning other maybe theories or incentives. They think back to that activity, and it, it can be the simplest activity. What, what's your favorite activity that you do in class? So I'll just follow up because it kind of relates to what we're already talking about. I don't know if it's my favorite, but, but it, I think my class gets the most enjoyment out of it. Um, I borrowed this idea from Diane Cole. She's a British economist. And she was talking about um, human happiness. And she, she was at a conference and she brought up a couple of attendees at this conference. And she said, um, I'm gonna give you something. Um, but first I wanna know how happy you are today. And she had them rank themselves on a scale from one to 10. So the first person said, oh, I'm like a five. And then she whipped out an envelope and she said, well, here's 10 pounds. Um, how do you feel now? And I think the person said, oh, well, uh, I think I'm like a seven now. And then, you know, the whole audience is like, you know, pretty pleased, right? We just proved the basic economic postulate, right? That more money makes people happy. And, and then Diane goes to the next person who comes up, how are you doing today? And, and let's just say that they said five as well. Um, and she said, you know, I just, I just want to give you a hug. And she gives this person like this big bear hug. And now this person got this big bear hug in front of this audience. And she said, well, how do you feel? And they said, I feel great. You know, I feel like I'm a nine, right? <laughs> and so here we are, we have like the exact proof of the point that we're talking about. And I borrowed this idea in, five, in front of 500 students. And I asked for two volunteers before class. They never know what they're getting into when they volunteer. Oh. Class. And so they're up in front of the room and one person gets the money and they're pretty happy. <laughs> one person gets the giant bear hug from their instructor. And you know what? They're just always happy to have gotten the giant bear hug. And so... Um, it, it's a it's a simple sketch. But it makes I might the, use that one. It yeah. makes Oklahoma 500 come alive because it's not, it becomes personal. I guess that's the point. Huh. 
And then I, I guess it would allow you to get into if we want to geek out again, just, uh, well, I feel a nine. Well, does that mean the the hug was worth more than the money or whatever? You can start getting inter right. interpersonal comparisons or whatever, but that, that don't make sense. But, but nonetheless, the point is that we can have other things that are non-monetary in nature that increase our utility. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Charity Joy, did you have a, I think it's kind of fun. We haven't really explained some of these things that we do in class. Do it. What's your favorite experiment to do? Oh, I, I have a lot. We love to do experiments and demonstrations in our classroom. I only want your favorite. We don't want to bore the <laughs> listeners with every econ experiment. <laughs> it's actually kind of the opposite end of uh, human emotion or behavior. And that is the free writing experiment. And I love it because my students who think that they're the most magnanimous people out there are participate in this experiment and find out that they can be incredibly selfish against people <laughs> that they really know, you know, in, in their classroom. And it's, it's just fun for me. We have a fun time doing it. And I get to point, point it out to them and say, hey, you know, you, you guys are just as selfish as you want to criticize other people for being when you understand the incentives of this particular. Go ahead and explain it in a little more detail, I think, for our listeners, like how just briefly uh, how that would work with your experiment. They're given a couple of resources. We do it with cards, um, just to keep it easy, playing cards. And uh, if they keep that resource for themselves, it's worth a lot of money. And if they give it to the class pot, it's not worth anywhere near as much. Now, if everybody gave it to the class pot, everybody in the class would get that amount of money. But ah. if in me or my team, if we're doing it teams in a large class, if everybody else gives to the class pot, but I keep my resources for myself, I get my own resources and I get what's in the class pot. Oh. So the person who wins the most or the team that wins the most is the one that selfishly keeps their own resources for themselves and convinces everybody else to give their resources to the class pot, you know? <laughs> okay, so, so... The public good for, you know, is what we're looking at. Plus, and, plus the share of the pot, whoever did actually contribute. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and it does, I, it that's takes, another one, maybe. You know, all of one round for everyone to figure out that the people who were selfish are the ones who keep the most. Who get the and most. then they all modify their pay, their behavior to keep their resources, which means that everybody gets less than if they all contributed. But again, you're acting uh, selfishly. You're responding to those incentives irrationally, really, if we think about it in, in pure economic, the classical economic sense. Um, yeah. and, and they get sometimes they get very frustrated with it. Like, why are we all giving, you know, or, or they mm -hmm. just laugh at themselves because they realize, oh yeah, we see why this idea of a public good fails so miserably under this type of circumstance. Yeah. I would have to geek out a bit here. You know, you could just say that free riding is the dominant strategy <laughs> and uh, that you're just being perfectly rational um, to, to deploy that strategy. Right. Yeah. Well, that looks like a good spot to um, close up our first half here. And when we come back, I'm going to throw a question back to Dirk to kind of rekindle what we started off with. And I want to see where, where both Dirk and Charity Joy see God uh, manifest itself visibly in our economy. So we'll be back in 30 seconds.
The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at gortneyinstitute.org or call us at 785-248-2551. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Welcome back. Well, we ended up uh, throwing a question out here on visible and invisible parts of God. And I've mentioned this in previous shows before that I see kind of God all over the place with the what Adam Smith called the invisible hand is really, I think, the divine hand of God and guiding uh, scarce resources off to their highest and best use through uh, individuals and their interactions with other people and the choices that they make day in and day out. And that's a lot of what we look at in economics, and that's kind of economics uh, to me that I try to convey in the classroom, and I think uh, our two guests here uh, do something similar. So we're going to start off with um, Justin, maybe touching on that in a different uh, different way, different angle. So Justin, what were you thinking? Uh, so I really liked what um, I think Charity Joy was talking about in the first section when she was talking about some of the problems that we see with uh, the COVID response in terms of dealing with things that are measurable or immeasurable. And I wanted to jump off on that point a little bit. So one of the the things that I think COVID has made really visible is the kinds of trade-offs that need to be made, not just between things that are measurable versus things that um, are immeasurable, but um, even things that are both measurable, but are incommensurable. So Uh, We have epidemiologists, for instance, saying, you know, what we want to do is lower the amount of deaths. And, you know, we can lower the amount of deaths and we can lower the amount of deaths very low if we forbid people from doing anything. But that, you know, that will also come at an economic cost. And so the economists can say, well, we actually also want to minimize the amount of deaths while not sacrificing as much GDP or, you know, economic production. And, you know, that's measurable too, to a certain degree, but we don't have an a priori way to know what the ideal amount of sacrifices we want to make on the economic side to minimize the amount of deaths. And then it gets even worse because in addition to these things that are measurable, but are incommensurable, like uh, economic growth and deaths. Uh, We also have things like dignity and freedom. And those are, uh, it's not just that they're incommensurable, it's that we don't have a very good way to measure them. And insofar as we want to make policy decisions, then we have 
all these kinds of goods that we want to maximize. And it seems like what we need to, what we need then in order to make good decisions isn't just the kind of right calculating machine, but you need a kind of wisdom, which isn't something that you can define logarithmically. So I wanted to see if you had anything to say on that front. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah that turned into a heck of a question, <laughs> I might add. Let's talk a lot of stuff. Uh, it just reminds me a lot, and, and I, I guess I go back to what I'm familiar with in development economics, a very similar mindset of people saying, hey, this worked in this country, let's transport it over to this country over here. And then finding out that it doesn't work as well, because there's a different underlying uh, culture or values or, or different way of, of living that is not easily measured and saying, hey, you know, this doesn't tra transport or import here as easily as we would have thought it did. Um, or if it does, what's the counterfactual? You know, would it have been better if we had done something else? How do we measure these kinds of things that people value other than money? Uh, so that is that is a very difficult question. I know that our founding fathers thought a lot of this could be solved by giving people options again, by giving them choices, by saying, hey, you could move from this state to this other state where they are valuing what's going on, you know, your, your freedom here, uh, but over here they're valuing shutting everything down and telling you you have to stay, you know, in your home. Uh, so you've got this choice of movement, right? And I think that some of us are frustrated right now because we don't have that choice. Uh, we are seeing that all around us, that choice has been taken away. Um, and, and there isn't a, hey, things are going better over here than they are over there. Um, as as an economist, I'm kind of excited about some of these countries where they haven't shut down because it's a natural experiment. We'll get to see later on, you know, what's happening uh, with this. But obviously, all the variables aren't the same, so there there's going to be some some differences there. You want to jump in there? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, just to get to that point, I mean, the Declaration of Independence um, certainly articulates um, a level of wisdom um, that Justin is talking about. And I think that when we share a, a set of values, it's easier to approach something like COVID-19 um, and to find a way as a community of people um, to make choices in a way that do not necessarily require government direction um, or government legislation or even executive orders or emergency orders from governors. Um, and so that shared sense of space and understanding would have helped us a lot here rather than being a divided nation. Um, and so I think the costs are higher in a country like the United States in terms of managing a pandemic, especially when you start over $20 trillion in debt and you haven't prepared the <laughs> way forward in a sort of systematic um, approach to managing your finances. And so we've thrown everything imaginable at COVID-19 with no way of knowing what the future holds other than we have to pay it back. And, and to, to make matters even more uh, wonkish, uh, the Fed has jumped in here and basically said, oh, forget quantitative easing, then the great financial crisis, that was nothing. We now have quantitative easing infinity, meaning basically free money forever. 
And that just totally transforms the way the financial system works and the way the economy is going to operate and the incentives behind playing the game. We have set ourselves up for disaster because we weren't prepared for COVID, irrespective of what the numbers tell us about COVID, whether it is the big deal or somewhere in between or no big deal at all. You know, not even, not even going down that debate about how can we measure it. We just weren't ready. Well, and also getting back to this idea of invisible versus visible is people just, they hyper-focused on the, on the visible, hey, people are getting sick and there's some people dying and how do we get this, this risk, this particular risk down to zero, this risk of dying from COVID, yeah. right? Not realizing or, or just completely ignoring all of the other costs. And it's not simply economic, these economic costs translate into lives as well. People that are dying from an increase in domestic violence, you know, and an increase in recreational drug use and, and uh, overuse of alcohol and all of these other things, depression and suicide and all of these things that have increased uh, because of the economic hardships that we've placed on people and the reduction of their freedoms, you know, so there's, there's just, it's like, how can you do that? How can you completely ignore the other costs and be so hyper-focused on this one thing? And that's what we've done. And it's, it's mind-boggling to an economist to just going, wow, knowing what this is going to cost us in the future somewhat and not even completely knowing. Yeah, and just to jump in here with a nod to, to Jim Gortney and his work on economic freedom, you know, uh, basically economic growth and economic freedom you can correlate this with the value of um, a life. And essentially, by becoming more uh, successful and growing our economies, we save lives. And, and so when you shut down an economy, you naturally reverse the clock and you cost yourselves lives. And so the work that's been done in this area of economic freedom is incredibly valuable in trying to put a number behind these invisible deaths that will occur. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we could use, uh, I always just kind of go back to like, maybe we should use swimming pool deaths as mm -hmm. the benchmark. You know, you could, you could just pick so many different benchmarks, but like, how many more lives could we save if we banned swimming pools, right? The number of swimming pool deaths is way up there in terms of the number of drownings and other things. So, you know, we want to save lives, you know, let, maybe we should use that. Maybe we should use lightning strikes. Maybe we could use, you know, whatever. But to have this idea that zero is the, the start uh, is just so ridiculous. Um, again, as, as economists, we think in those terms all the time. And I think there's been a few people out in the media that have tried to push that. But for the large part, I mean, just think about the way the press puts it out in terms of the number of cases. The number of cases is almost meaningless. I mean, the, the number of deaths is something that you could, even though there's question mark of, where they're going to die by this or that tomorrow and they happen to have COVID and now they're dying today, right? I mean, so there, you can just kind of circle around all the time on that, but there's just no doubt that there's been an unprecedented amount of resources devoted to that. And if we, if we currently face the uncertainty that we did two months ago, I might be okay with the, I was actually okay with the shutdown when there was so much uncertainty. What I hated is that the experts didn't admit that we were actually facing uncertainty, not probability, right? Mm -hmm. So again, economists can weigh out the correct decision if we can put reasonable probabilities on different events. But the reality was we just faced pure uncertainty. Like 
is it going to be two million tomorrow or is it going to be a thousand tomorrow? I mean, it was really a shot in the dark. And so that wasn't fair for these models to be predicting anything if there wasn't any reasonable uh, assessment on the probability. So your point about uncertainty, Russ, is really good. And it leads me to a point I, I wanted to make that I think we'll circle back to where Justin was uh, with, with the idea of wisdom. You know, faith is believing in something greater than this life. If you don't have faith, then darn it, these models where you want to try to get the risk down to zero sound like the best possible solution, right? Because you want to maximize this life, whatever the you know, number of days or years you can have. Um, but for a person of faith, man, we, we, don't, we don't think that way. We think that this life is a bridge to the next life, right? The eternal life, right? And so this is, this is our chance to learn and experience and to grow and to, to gain wisdom. Um, so as a believer, I think of the, you know, the fear that comes from COVID as being paralyzing to individuals. And really, when you think about the Great Depression or the Great Financial Crisis and now COVID, they're all struck with this idea of fear of the unknown, fear of uncertainty. Am I going to lose my job? All of these issues that, that play in people's minds. Um, and so we need to be more focused and more confident in what's to come and, and less concerned about a small blip in a probability distribution um, that might somewhat increase our chance of passing due to COVID and more forceful um, in living our lives with joy um, and taking life and, and running with it and letting other people see our joy rather than hiding behind masks or staying six feet apart. And um, that's these the choices we're being forced to make here to me are really, really hard choices and not consistent with any understanding of underlying probabilities. And, and that's a shame. Yeah. yeah, and what's always at odds with faith is this idea that we want to control different things, you know, and, and instead of trusting God in our lives and the work that he's doing and all the things that we don't know, our information is always imperfect and we want it to be perfect, you know, and our models always assume that we have perfect information and we're going to spit out this, this choice that we can have because of this and we don't have perfect information, you know, and, and we have to give up that control and we have a tendency, a human tendency to want to control and to say, this is what I know. And so I'm going to control what I know and I'm going to control what I can see rather than have faith and trust in all of the, the multitude of variables that we have no idea exist and how they're affecting our lives. And to have this prideful, uh, you know, illusion that we can actually control all of this and that we know enough to have some positive outcome on our lives or the lives of those around us is, is not the way that a Christian believes, you know, Christian believes it's God, you know, so much that I don't know. And I've got to be at peace with that, you know, and that is faith being at peace with, I don't know everything. I can't control it. God, you're in control instead. Yeah, and at the same time, we do have a kind of a stewardship responsibility that to be responsible with the resources that we do have. And, and so maybe in terms of wearing a mask or keeping six foot or doing some social distancing that we don't have the, the license to be reckless with everything that we do because I know I'm going to heaven. I've got the golden ticket. And so it doesn't really matter what I do. Um, I think that would uh, 
not be supported uh, biblically either. So we do, we do even, um, as Christians, kind of wrestle with that to a certain extent. And uh, I think at the end of the day, you just come to peace that I did the best that I can. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I prayed about it or whatever, and I think this was the, the, the right way to handle this particular situation. I think we take our cues, too, from the people that we meet. And you can tell when somebody is, is really concerned about COVID based on how they react and interact with you, or if you're walking along a path, they, they step off the path. Um, and then you can see somebody else who's not wearing a mask, and they, they come right up to you, and um, their first reaction is their, what I'll call a, a normal reaction from pre-COVID times, which is, oh, hey, great to see you, and they want to give you a hug. Then they're not sure if they can give you a hug because they don't know what you're thinking. Um, but if they detect that you would take a hug, then, then you might hug, right? You know, so we go through this very complicated dance now to try to figure out how to interact with people in a way that's acceptable to them. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this looks like a good place to bring it to a close. I think we circled around eventually uh, getting to Justin. I don't know if you, he was satisfied or not with uh, his uh, magnum opus question there. <laughs> but it was fun. I think we had a, a good, good uh, circling around of the, of the issues and, and thinking about the things that we do. And I hope the listeners then get a, a little bit of a maybe even a different idea of what economists think about uh, in terms of evaluating these risks and, and our behaviors. So um, it was great to have you two on the show. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you. Great to be here. Yep, our pleasure. All right. So on behalf of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University, I'd like to thank you all for listening. And if you feel so inclined and Find a little way to measure on your iPhone. A little five-star rating helps us rise through the ranks and helps other people find the information that we talk about on this podcast. So uh, we appreciate you listening. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.